Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And today we'll be talking about your First Amendment rights in the age of the coronavirus. With the vast majority of the country under shelter-in-place orders of one kind or another, what does that mean for the five freedoms of the First Amendment? The right to attend religious services, to speak out in favor or against the government, for the press to cover the latest news, to assemble and protest, or for your right to petition the government to change its policies. These are not abstract questions. In late March, Florida arrested a pastor for holding a worship service despite an emergency order banning large gatherings. And earlier this month, police broke up a group of people protesting the shelter-in-place order in Raleigh, North Carolina, because they said, the police said, that too many people were too close together. And what about the states that allow for ballot measures to change the law? In California, for example, you must gather over 600,000 signatures to place a measure on an upcoming ballot. How do you gather those signatures when you aren't allowed to leave your home for non-essential purposes? Joining us to help us break it all down is Josh Blackman. He's a professor of law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston, and he specializes in constitutional law and is the author of three books on the subject, including most recently, An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. Professor Blackman, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So not a day goes by where I don't get a text from a friend or family member asking me about the constitutionality of all that's going on right now. They think that because I work at FIRE, I I should have all the answers. But of course, I do not. I am not a lawyer. I've never lived through a pandemic, and I don't know anyone who has lived through a pandemic. But that's not to say that nobody in American history has. Has America had to grapple with these legal questions before, and and how have they done that? Um, Historically, the courts have been very deferential to the executive branch in times of uh, pandemics. Um, Hamilton wrote that the courts were the least dangerous branch, and the executive was marked by vigor um, and flexibility and energy. Um, And I think that dynamic is most present when we have these sorts of health crises. Um, it falls to the executive, whether the federal executive branch or the governors of the states, to quickly and um, uh, hopefully thoughtfully uh, make changes for society to deal with these sorts of health conditions. Invariably, these orders run into freedom of speech. They run into the freedom of exercise. They run into the freedom of assembly, freedom of association. Um, and people always go to the courts. They tell the courts, we're not, we're not having our rights respected. We're having our rights violated. Do something. And in almost every case, the courts say, eh, not for us to. We're going to sit on the outside and look in. And that's, that's really been the story of, uh, of, you know, as we say, law in the time of, of epidemics. But the government can't just do anything at once, right? I mean, legally, although the courts have given the executives, whether they're state or federal executives, broad leeway to address these public health emergencies, they, they can't use any instrument they want, right? Well, a couple things to keep in mind. Um, every state in the union 
and the federal government has laws in the books, right? The legislatures have delegated vast amounts of authorities to the executive to deal with public crises and, and public health measures. Um, usually these are fairly, you know, minor. Uh, someone has smallpox and they're, they're forced to be quarantined. Or perhaps, you know, someone comes back from Africa with Ebola and the governor of New Jersey has to detain them. Um, these measures usually exist and we never hear about them because they're fairly minor. What makes these measures so different now is they affect huge swaths of the population. Um, can the governor do whatever he wants? No, no, he can't. Um, but there is power. And let me explain a concept that might be helpful. Um, in law, there's something called a law of general applicability. Uh, what does general applicability mean? The law applies to all people on an equal basis. So it's not group X must take some health measure, but group Y doesn't, right? The law applies to all people. Generally, when you have a very stringent law that applies to all people, um, that measure will probably be valid. Uh, so, so as a general matter, when you impose a community-wide um, social distancing measure, um, it's a law of general applicability. Where people get upset is we actually don't have these laws enforced entirely equally. Some businesses are deemed essential. Some workers are deemed non-essential. Um, so some people are able to go out and about and, and go to the work, and other people aren't. Um, you can have a drive through Wendy's, but you can't have a drive through church. Um, you know, people can assemble in an airport. They can sit on an airplane, which might be quite congested, uh, but they can um, assemble outside of, uh, uh, you know, st the state capitol to protest. Um, and invariably, the government starts drawing lines about what you can and can't do. And it's when you start drawing these lines and moving away from laws of general applicability that the constitutional authority to act becomes uh, more in doubt. Um, we've seen early glimpses of these sorts of challenges. Uh, you know, we're already in, we're only in basically month, I guess, month one and a half of this lockdown. If this lockdown stretches through the summer, um, I think some of these challenges might start gaining steam. So when I think about the First Amendment and government restrictions on First Amendment activity, I often think about the requirement that it must be narrowly tailored to serve a significant government interest and can't burden more conduct or expression than is otherwise necessary to serve that interest. And you were talking earlier about how, whether you're dealing with Ebola or smallpox, often the government would require someone to give up their rights to assemble or travel or leave the house uh, in order to force them into quarantine. But here, as you were saying, it has a general applicability to most of society. Even those of us who do not have coronavirus are restricted from going out. Is there any distinction in the law that matters there or not? Um, I guess it doesn't matter when you don't have the testing to test everyone. So you don't even know who has coronavirus. Right. So we always ask with uh, constitutional scrutiny, is there a least restrictive means for the government to act? In other words, is there some other way for the government to achieve their interests without violating some right? So let's just say that there was some sort of test that within a span of one second, you can instantly determine who is and who is not um, uh, infected. Um, perhaps you can also tell, are you a carrier or not? Because perhaps you're infected, but you're not symptomatic. If the government could easily tell who is and who is not infected, then you probably wouldn't need such broad measures. 
or maybe masks, right? Imagine the government says everyone must wear a mask outside and the mask reduces the risk of transmission to like, you know, 0.1%. I'm making up numbers here. Um, if you can show there's a least restrictive means to um, achieve your goal, then these broader measures, these quarantine measures may not be valid. Uh, but again, at this point, courts are starting to assess the efficacy, the, the effectiveness of the health measures the government chooses. And the leading precedents say that's not for the courts to decide what does and does not work. Uh, the government might be able to take a more, how shall I say, restrictive approach, uh, you know, better safe than sorry approach. So you see some of these conversations surrounding privacy as well, uh, not baked within the First Amendment, uh, but an important and somewhat adjacent right. You see companies like Apple and Google right now trying to develop apps that can trace who has the coronavirus and who they come in contact with. Were the government to require Americans to have an app like that or to have some sort of tracing technology carried with them, would that be constitutional? It would be generally applicable, but it would also seem to strike me as some, some way fundamentally different. Just makes kind of my stomach turn almost. Yeah, right. I mean, we hear about contact tracing. Uh, people don't really know what that means. Contact tracing is basically the government figures out who have you been in contact with, and then they trace all those contacts and contact those people to tell them that you might be infected by, you know, John Doe. Um, you know, there's been a lot of praise for um, South Korea and some of the uh, um, Asian countries of how effectively they've dealt with Corona. And one of the way they've done this is through massive contact tracing, where they basically snoop on a person's phone, track their location data, check their emails, check their, you know, ch check their texts, see who they're contacting with, and figure out everyone they've been in contact with, and then force those people into quarantine. Um, maybe people don't realize this, but in South Korea, if grandma gets infected, grandma doesn't stay at home, right? They take grandma out of the house. If little Susie gets infected, they take Susie out of the house. They're, they separate families. Mm. Um, maybe that's an acceptable um, option in some other cultures. I think in America, that would be a very hard thing to swallow, right? Um, in other words, there's, not, there's no quarantine at home. Once you're infected, you're basically made into this sort of pariah, and everyone you've been in contact with gets that sort of treatment. Um, could this be done through Apple, right? Where Apple tracks all of your motions on your iPhone. And then they say, oh, you were in the same vicinity as John Doe and Jane Roe. Let's go tell them that they may be infected and we test them. Again, th this is extremely effective, uh, maybe even ruthless effectiveness. Um, but it perhaps doesn't sit well with the civil libertarians in this country. Um, could the government do this? Um, the, 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 there was a case at the Supreme Court a few years ago involving GPS tracking. And generally, you need a warrant to track someone with a GPS, you know, basically putting a GPS on their, on their car if you want to do that. Um, but you might also have um, cell location data, even cell location data, uh, where you travel may be uh, a subject to the Fourth Amendment. So I don't know how these policies would even work in this country. Yeah, and it's a, even more difficult with all the laws that we have surrounding health data uh, and revealing that. So, yeah, it would be challenging. You, you mentioned civil libertarians. Uh, a lot of civil libertarians run in my circles, and I'm starting to see more frustration with what's going on right now, knowing that there are certain populations that are more susceptible to the virus. Those with diabetes uh, suffer from high blood pressure or obesity, uh, who are older, 
And younger people are saying, well, I'm healthy. I know the virus is out there. I know if I leave my home, I could get the virus. With all this information and all this foreknowledge, why can't I make the decision myself to go out of the home if I want to? Now, naturally, there will be other people who leave the home for essential activities who might come in contact with that person and be put at a greater risk as a result. But there is a sort of personal autonomy consideration uh, to factor in there. And as we understand more about the, uh, the virus, people will be able to make more rational decisions about the risks that they're willing to take. Look, um, the classic libertarian, you know, the, the no harm principle, right? I, I can swing my arm uh, as I wish unless I hit someone else's nose. Infectious diseases are different, right? If it were a situation where, you know, I don't want to, wear, I don't want to wear a motorcycle helmet, right? Screw you. If I get it, if I kill myself, that's my choice. It's a classic libertarian argument. Um, that's fine. But when you don't wear a helmet, um, you're not going to hurt other people, right? In fact, if you're on a motorcycle and you get into an accident and you fly through someone's windshield, a helmet may actually hurt someone more, right? A helmet would actually would fly through the windshield and hurt someone. Um, but with uh, corona, you might be a silent carrier. That is, you know, this 20-year-old millennial who just finished reading Atlas Shrugged for the fifth time, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that doesn't exist. Either. You know, <laughs> he might carry, I'm never inviting this podcast again, he, he might carry um, uh, the disease and go around and spread it to his friends and spread it to his friend's grandma and, and then uh, spread it to some kids, etc. So it's, it's almost where every person is no longer an island unto themselves. Each person invariably with this ailment can harm others. But isn't that true of, of any ailment, whether it's the flu or the cold? Uh, I know plenty of people who it, it, refuse it, it, to, to refuse yeah. to stay at home during and instead go to work. And as a result, probably infect other people. I don't know that there are any lawsuits that would establish any legal precedent surrounding that, but the stakes might be higher in, with, coronavirus but the principle would probably be the same with it others. is it, it is and i think the lethality or the, the the both the ease of spread and both the lethality of this um disease perhaps warrants a separate treatment than the common cold um i mean i i'm sure i've i've gone to school and i had a bit of a cold and whatever you know i i, I, yeah. I, I all of I, us I, I think we can admit that yeah i i i, I had perfect attendance throughout all of k through 12 i didn't i never missed school uh, thankfully um, so maybe I, maybe I was guilty of that a few times. Um, uh, but may, maybe the flip side answer is we should take the South Korean approach and isolate those who are vulnerable and let those who aren't, you know, rule the earth, so to speak. Right. Let, let, let people who are healthy and young do their business and people who are vulnerable get infected aren't. Um, I mean, this, this is getting more into a question about science that I feel that they feel remotely comfortable answering. Yeah. Um, but legally speaking, can the state make the judgment? Can they say, well, we don't want to, we don't think it's effective enough to isolate the vulnerable people. Let's isolate everyone and save resources. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't have enough knowledge to say which approach is right or wrong, but I think as far as the courts are concerned, they don't want us to be in the business of deciding, you oh, this measure is too restrictive. This measure is not nearly restrictive enough. How do you think that states can or should approach ballot measure requirements, I'm thinking in particular about California here, that require people to gather signatures. You can't gather signatures because you have to sh shelter in place. Is there anything that the law might say about that? Or is that more of a policy question that lawmakers are going to have to grapple with 
uh, as they come up on on these future elections? Um, I, I think the measure or the variables, how long these measures last for, um, to be perfectly frank, at some point, I think people are going to start get annoyed at these measures and say, okay, enough with this already. You're telling us we have to wait 18 months for a vaccine. And at that point, you might actually see the courts become a bit more um, saying, okay, get on with already. What, what, what's your end game? We can't keep people locked up forever. So I think uh, uh, that that might be where we're headed, although I, I don't know how quickly that's going to happen. And does your analysis before about generally applicable laws apply in the context of protests outside of state houses as well? I mean, do you think that governments can flat out ban them? Because that not only raises an assembly, a speech and a speech concern, it also raises a petition concern. Or do you think that their regulations should be more narrowly tailored and say, okay, yeah, you can come out here in a protest, but for example, you've got to stand at least six feet apart. If you're not standing at least six feet, feet apart, you get a warning and then maybe a fine. I find the protest cases really difficult. Um, I find the religion cases also difficult. Um, so, so here's one argument, right? Um, can you pray by yourself? Ew. I guess you can. Um, but for some faiths, prayer in groups is more effective. Um, and indeed, in, in my own faith, in, in the Jewish faith, unless you have a minion, a quorum of 10 people, you, you can't say certain prayers. Certain prayers require a quorum of 10 people. Um, social distancing makes it very hard to do that. Uh, you have people basically standing on roofs and standing on porches and shouting so that they're able to maintain this 10-person quorum. Can you protest by yourself? That's not very effective at all. No. In fact, the purpose of a protest is a signal to the world that you are protesting, and you're protesting at the seat of government, the state capitol. I, I don't know that there's any way to protest effectively a quarantine ban unless you protest the quarantine ban with other people. Right. It's it's you know I don't think there's any least restrictive way of doing it. You you're you're stifling the only channel. I guess you could protest on Twitter, right? You have a have a have a group chat, but if you want to signal to the lawmakers, you have to do it in person. So in some regards, the protest cases I think are tougher than the religious cases, although the religious cases I think are very difficult. I would be very hesitant to start arresting people or fining people for protesting. Um I I I, I don't think that would stand in any um context. It's 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 there's no other way to protest than to protest. That's that's the only way you can do it. You can't do it any other way that I can think of that 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 that, that achieves that message. And you do have some states that are identifying protests or First Amendment activity as essential. Uh, I think Ohio is one of the states that does that. I want to ask about travel because one of the big restrictions that we're seeing right now is our restrictions on travel, which could have a downstream impact, I guess, on assembly as well, because you need to travel in order to assemble, right? And if right, the yeah. uh, underlying assembly is is deemed non-essential, then the travel would be deemed uh, in violation of whatever executive order. So how do you how do you look at travel? And I guess for our listeners, can you give us a little bit of background on the, the constitutional protections for travel? Because it's not an enumerated right in the Constitution, although it might be assumed in certain rights, as I was mentioning, like assembly. Right. Um, the Constitution doesn't speak of a right of travel. It's been sort of, I don't want to say inferred, but it's been suggested that this is a right that's unenumerated. There's a provision of the Constitution known as the Privileges and Immunities Clause. The Privileges and Immunities Clause. Oh, yeah. Article I used to work at the, the Institute for Justice, so I'm very oh, familiar you know with that. that well. <laughs> right. So Article, well, well there's, there's two provisions, right? There's the 14th Amendment, which has the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Yes. And Article 4 
which has a privileges and immunities clause. You can remember because Article 4 comes first, A and A comes mm-hmm. earlier in the alphabet, the 14th Amendment, or O comes later in the alphabet. And the courts have long said that one of the privileges and immunities of citizenship is a right of travel. Um, what does that mean? You don't need the government's permission to move, to move around from state to state. Um, this might sound obvious, but it wasn't always so. For for, for for some time, slaves were not able to travel because they were not citizens. They were at some courts so held that, that they would actually need permission to move from place to place. Um, so this right of travel is very important. Um, we've seen right of travel cases in sort of bizarre contexts, you know, like police checkpoints, right? Or where police won't let certain people into an area where there's suspicions of crime. Um, but we've never really seen states erecting borders stopping people from other states. My home state of Texas, you know, was basically stopping cars from out of state saying, where are you going, right? Uh, quarantine from Louisiana. I think there were governors from Rhode Island or maybe New Hampshire who were stopping people with New York license plates. I mean, just it's it's stunning. If I told you this three months ago, you'd say, what, are you insane? And I was like, yeah, whatever. That was Tuesday. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's odd because uh, you can travel to these states via airplane. No one's going to stop you. They might ask you to quarantine uh, when you get there. Yeah. But. You actually have um, you actually have Texas Rangers at the airports giving people forms saying you must quarantine for 14 days. Oh, interesting. If you have a, if you have a flight from New York. Um, so uh, the, the short answer is there's no precedent on this. We don't we don't it's never been done before. Um, so people are able to move, but they're putting restrictions on those movements. And are you seeing people start to challenge these restrictions in court. I mean, another unique quirk of this whole pandemic is that courts are delaying cases. I mean, that you're not getting hearings on your cases. Uh, the Supreme Court, I think, is hearing only a very few cases. They've delayed the other ones. It would take a while for one of these cases to get up to the Supreme Court. But how can these even be challenged right now, and are they? Um, I think we're unlikely to see any challenges that, that go anywhere. Um, I think the courts are generally going to be um, deferential. Uh, although, I mean, may- maybe I'm wrong. We- we've seen cases involving abortion where judges have come, kind of gone both ways. We've seen cases involving free exercise where courts have intervened. But I think you can have very narrow cases where you have real relief. The general argument that I don't want to be subject to a quarantine, those are not going to fly. It has to be a very specific constitutional right that um, that's at issue. I was... Uh talking with some friends and doing some research before this podcast. And we were mentioning at the top of it that there is some history in the United States of governments taking extraordinary measures uh, at extraordinary times. And I think it was Walter Olson over at Cato who pointed me to John Adams' second annual address to Congress, which happened on December 8th, 1798. People will forget or not often know that smallpox seemed to come and go almost every year. Uh, during America's founding, there was a significant smallpox outbreak at that time. And John Adams, in the first paragraph of his second annual address, uh, the this, this is essentially the State of the Union, which used to be written to Congress, but is now given in the chambers uh, and often televised. But John Adams begins it, it, by it should, saying, be, it should be in writing again. We should get rid of the television part. We should go back to writing. <laughs> why, why do you say that? It's a waste of time. It's, you just think it's a sideshow? Yeah. Because you have so you have Supreme Court justices falling asleep and people yep. standing and clapping. Yeah, I, I I can see that argument, but in this in this one, John Adams is acknowledging you know it's nice that you know things are starting to get back to normal, and then he says 
When we reflect that this fatal disorder has within a few years made repeated ravages in some of our principal seaports, and with increased malignancy, and when we consider the magnitude of the evils arising from the interruption of public and private business, whereby the national interests are deeply affected, I think it my duty to invite the legislature of the Union to examine the expediency of establishing suitable regulations in the aid of the health laws of the respective states. And that's very interesting to me. Uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that John Adams, being a principal framer uh, and founder of the United States, sees it within the scope of the Constitution's powers to uh, place restrictions in 1798. The other thing is interesting is it speaks so much, it's, it's almost like it could have been written today, the interruption of public and private businesses. And then he goes on further in the address to talk about commerce. And I think he sees that because these viruses are often transmitted through trade, that the Commerce Clause empowers the federal government to place restrictions on trade in order to fight the virus. So I found that very, very interesting. And then also, uh, I think Pacific Legal Foundation wrote a little bit about this, but the that 1798 yellow fever outbreak also resulted in the governor of Pennsylvania banning travel between Philadelphia and New York. So have you, have you thought at all about what the Commerce Clause might empower the federal government to do here? Because I don't see that argument being made. Um, you know, I have a, I have a idiosyncratic reaction um, to this situation. Much of the criticism of President Trump is that he has not been as proactive as he should have been. He should be doing more to set a national policy. Yeah, I wanted to get uh, into this too, so I'm glad you're I'm bringing not, it up. I, I'm not a Trump fan. I don't particularly care for most things he does. I actually like this part. Um, I don't think it's the federal government's prerogative. I think the states should have responsibility. Um, I, I, I would not want to live in a world where the feds tell the states how to manage their health conditions. I don't think that's a, that's a good idea. In fact, one of my principal objections to the Affordable Care Act is exactly that. It, it federalizes health care. And I think that there are significant costs of going down that, that road. Um, you, you know, we're in a weird space where states are having to work on their own to get their own testing to try to find their own path forward. I'm like, good, you should do that more. Um, that, 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 that's the correct order of things. Um, it's too easy to simply rely on the federal government. Um, when you rely on the federal government, there are going to be winners and losers, right? Trump will pick some states he likes, other states he doesn't, right? You're going to have some, someone in Washington deciding, well, New York only needs this much and and California needs that much. And, and invariably, when you have that sort of discretion, favoritism will kick in. It's, it's impossible not to. Um, I suppose you can have it by per capita, but the infections are not distributed evenly. Uh, maybe you do it by the number of infections. Maybe there's some other measure. But you're still not going to have any fair approach because you're having members of Congress putting their hand in the cookie jar and taking what they want. Right? Trump has his favorites, and you have the other members of Congress are their favorites. So I, I, I'm not troubled by it. Uh, now, does the federal government have the power to order states around? They don't. Um, can the federal government impose restrictions on interstate travel? Probably. There was some discussion whether Trump could ban people from going to New York. I would reluctantly say that might actually work. If there was some really bad contagion in New York, the only way it would stop the spread was to shut down the borders or shut down the island of Manhattan. You know, it's almost like one of these, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, these uh, you know, dystopian movies. Uh, I am legend, right? I don't know that that's unconstitutional um, if the if the need is severe. And I, I think we've seen that the curve is it keeps flattening and growing. I don't I don't I stopped, we don't talk about the curve anymore. That that was, that was like still two weeks ago. But <laughs> yeah. it, it seems that we we've entered something of a stasis where um, 
the urgency seems to have faded. And now it's almost this weird holding pattern. Where we just can't leave our houses anymore. Well, you had the president initially claim that he alone, I think he said something like, when you are president, your authority is absolute, that he alone would have the power to open up the economy. And I, I, I guess if you wanted to make that argument, you were a creative legal thinker, you could argue that through the Commerce Clause, he could have, I, I'm reading the second half of this first paragraph of John Adams' inaugural address. He says, for these being formed on the idea that contagious sickness may be communicated through the channels of commerce, there seems to be a necessity that Congress, who alone can regulate trade, should frame a system which, while it may tend to preserve the general health, may be compatible with the interests of commerce and the safety of the revenue. I mean, if you if you make an argument that opening up the economy is necessary to get commerce going so that goods can cross borders, um, so that someone who places an order in the state of Iowa can have that order shipped to the someone in the state of North Carolina, but you don't see that as being all that compelling of an argument. Not really. I think the states have, you know, their their autonomy, um, but ultimately, when you get to interstate stuff, Congress, I think, would the federal government would be able to jump in. The um, libertarians we were mentioning, civil libertarians earlier, might say that they they envision a narrow role for the federal government. But there are certain things that are so big and so catastrophic if they were to happen that the federal government should be in charge of coordinating the response. You might think natural disasters, war, famine, arguably pandemic. But at the same time, there's also the point that you were making earlier, essentially that states should be the laboratories of democracy and should be setting, uh, I hope I'm not misquoting you here, more, setting more or less their health policy and their responses. What role do you see or envision within the legal framework and, and your vision of the Constitution as there being for the federal government in something like this? I don't have an objection if the federal government wants to set guidelines that all the states have to follow, but we should be candid that those are guidelines and the states don't have to follow them. They can deviate. And the states can also enact their own policies. I think that's necessary and proper for our federalist system. Um, so the fact that you have a weak federal leadership you know that might be an indictment on Trump, but as a constitutional matter, um, I don't, I don't, I don't see any shortcomings there. Um, you know, the, the policy in New York need not be the policy in Wyoming. Um, this virus spreads through density. Most states do not have density. Um, most states are the opposite. It, it's, it's sparsity. Um, people are spread apart. Um, you know. The, 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 the penetration rate when you have to ride the subway to work is going to be different when you're, when you're on a farm with your nearest neighbors two miles away. Um, so I, I think that states can have different approaches, um, uh, even to something as, as, as harsh as corona outbreak, right? If you don't have urban centers, you can, you can handle things differently. Um, uh, so once again, I think federalism does, does have some, does have some, so something to say about the situation. So on the federal and the state level, you're often seeing these orders come from executives, be they govern, uh, governors or the executive branch, if we're talking about the federal government. I, you know, I'm not a scholar in this area of law, but is that the appropriate legal vehicle to issue these orders? It seems as though the legislatures have no say in the matter. Or, and or does that change as the, or should it change as the crisis prolongs itself. I understand maybe the need for a 
executive to act immediately, but... Well, I wouldn't quite say the executives are acting unilaterally. Most of the executives are citing authority that, that, that was enacted by the legislature. I mean, the way it works is the legislature enacts a public health code that says, in the event of an emergency, the governor can do X, and the governor now is doing X. So the legislature is involved, just, just not directly. Perhaps the executive is, is stretching authorities and is using powers in ways the legislature didn't intend. I think that's a separate question. Uh, but this is not a case of the executives just, just you know, asserting decree powers. They're ruling based on statute. The, that actually raises an interesting question and kind of a more global question. Can these legislatures sort, essentially abdicate their responsibilities under state or federal constitutions, give them to an executive? I, I think about trade here, for example. Uh, we were talking about John Adams' second annual address to, to Congress. He says, there seems to be the necessity that Congress, who alone can regulate trade, should frame any of these systems. But we see this in the trading context that most of the stuff that's happening with trade has nothing to do with Congress recently. So what do, what do the courts say about the legislatures giving some of their authority to the executive branch? Well, I think we have to separate state and federal, right? Yeah. Um, the state governments have what's called a broad police power. The state governments are not limited to enumerated powers. They're very broad power. So I don't see much of a problem with the state legislatures giving the state executives as a governor's authority. As for Congress, the federal government, there should be limits on what legislative powers the uh, a federal government, the Congress, gives to the president. Um, I think there's limits on what can be delegated. Um, but there's a problem. The Supreme Court has basically said we're not interested, right, that the uh, executive branch can exercise rulemaking power that looks like lawmaking power. Um, and this is an old horse that's not being, uh, yeah. an, an old issue that's not being resolved here. Um, but the the state should have the primary responsibility in this matter, not not the federal government. Is, is there a particular legal question that you're most interested in seeing unfold as this pandemic moves forward? You mentioned earlier that courts might be more willing to give uh, authorities the ability to regulate public health measures at the beginning, but that might wane as the crisis prolongs. Yeah, I think I think we might see it in the context of uh, institutionalized persons, uh, that is people who are in prisons, people who are in old age homes, people who are in uh, uh, different types of institutional facilities where they can't care for themselves, and I th- immigration detention facilities, among others. And I think you might start seeing courts ordering if not releases, scrutiny of how these facilities are being run during these difficult times. That might be one area where the courts are eager to get involved as time goes on, right? Not right now, but maybe over the summer. Interesting. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Professor. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me uh, today. And can you just remind us uh, of the, the, the books that you have out that our listeners, if they want to learn more about your work, can check out? Yeah, sure. The The most recent one is a book I wrote with Randy Barnett at Georgetown. It's called An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. Um, and it includes an 11-hour video library of all the famous cases people should read about. So go to Amazon to get a copy. Oh, wonderful. And is that video library, I mean, it's obviously not video of the cases, but what's featured in there? We produce a video library of audio from the Supreme Court decisions 
uh, a splice with their own commentary. Uh, it's it's a very ambitious project. I think I think your listeners will very much enjoy it. Wonderful. Well, for our listeners who want to learn more about Professor Blackman and his work, you can visit his website at joshblackman.com. Again, he is a professor at South Texas College of Law in Houston. Professor Blackman, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. We take reviews, so if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your episodes. Uh, reviews do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening. Thank you.